You're listening to Conversations with Shonda, a Minneapolis Foundation podcast that unpacks the community's grittiest, most vexing problems, hosted by Shonda Smith-Baker. Last year was a time that forced many of us to reflect on ourselves and the world. There has been so much loss. And as Shonda states, to be here and survive has been a gift. We wanted to summarize the year of 2021. So our team pulled together short clips from dynamic guests featuring George Floyd's family members, Angela Harrelson and Paris Stevens, to Kimberly Fox, Deborah Archer, Jim Baird Jacobs, and much more. Enjoy the show. Could you could you provide us a little bit of insight in terms of how you found out and watching that video, uh, how that video impacted you. And I'll start with you, Angela. Yeah, um, I actually did not know, know he was killed till like the day after. I didn't hear anything. I didn't hear no calls from no family or nothing. So to me, I woke up, it was like a normal day. When I did find out, it was through a news reporter of some type of media. And I remember so clearly, I answered the phone that day. And he said, are you Angela Harrelson? I said, well, yes, I am. He said, I'm calling about the murder of your nephew, George Floyd, who was killed by the Minneapolis police. Now I'm thinking, because we know him as Perry. The whole family, we all call him Perry. You guys know him as George Floyd. So I'm thinking, well, he must got the wrong family because I haven't heard anything. But I knew there was something in his tone that was serious. But I honestly thought he had the wrong family. But he asked me again, he said, are you Angela Harrelson? I said, yes, I am. He said, I'm calling about the murder of your nephew, George Floyd, who was killed by the Minneapolis police. And I'm thinking, boy, he, I wonder what family, you know, because it, it honestly, it was nothing was clicking, registering me. I remember saying, you know, you, he must have the wrong family. So I put the phone down. I hung it up. But something inside kept bothering me. It was like a nagging spirit. So I, something said, check your messages. I checked my messages. And I had all these text messages, you know, call me, call ASAP. And then something just, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm getting a little nervous here. And then I checked my voicemail. And it was my sisters that called, you need to call ASAP. And I'm like, oh my God, what is going on? Because I'm still. So I remember calling and the first words that came out of my sibling's mouth, Perry is dead. Police killed Perry. Turn the TV on. And my mind went back to that telephone call, just like that. Then I heard my husband yelling, Angela, you need to come in here. So my mind is just all over the place. And I remember I ran in there, and the minute I walked into that living room, that's where Perry was, on his stomach, handcuffed, and the words, right, I walked into the words, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And everything was going kind of blur. And then I heard him say, mama, mama. And he was gone. And I'm saying to myself, what in the world did I just watch? Because it's like my whole life just flipped. 
I was started crying. I was angry. I got a little hostile. My emotion was all over the place. My husband was trying to calm me down. He was trying to just be okay. And I'm like, no, it's not okay. So I get back on the phone. Excuse me. Give me a minute. Okay. So I get back on the phone and I started calling my family. I was trying to do three-way calls. I was trying to do four-way. I was trying to just call everybody. And when I look back on it, I was looking, I was trying I was trying, I was trying to get a different answer than what I knew. Just calling everybody and they were telling me the same thing. And so I just remember I just trying to take all this in and I was numb. And I remember sitting there and I told my husband, he just stayed with me. I said, just, I just need some time. Cause honestly, all my emotions was all over the place. And I was, <clears throat> I just didn't know what to do. I was lost. I was that day, I was lost. Paris, how about for you? Well, I had, I had worked late that night. And so like early in the morning, we have an uncle that's in, um, aunt's brother is in, he was in Saudi Arabia at the time. He had sent me a message with the video. And he said, you need to look at this. So I clicked on the video to watch it. And I was like, no, that's not him. That can't be him. This, this isn't happening. And so I laid there for a while. And then I clicked back on the video again. And I was like, is this really him? And I was watching the officer. And I was like, he's just going to kneel on him for all this time and not come to a realization that this is wrong. And then you can hear the voices, hear him saying, I can't breathe. And I'm like, you're still not gonna move as an officer who's supposed to protect us. And so my mom came in and she was like, have you heard, have you seen? I was like, is this really him? I said, so I'm still in disbelief. I said, so they put him in the ambulance, right? And he's alive, right? And she said, no, he's not alive. He died. Mm. He didn't. What did you say, Angela? I said, he didn't make it. He preached his own funeral that day. He literally preached his own funeral that day. Because he was there and he was calling out and he said things like, especially going to the trial, tell my kids I love them. They're going to kill me. I can't breathe. And he wanted his family to know that he loved them. So... It was also what he went through. That, that, that's why I say that. And um, he fought. He fought. I tell people he fought 
for nine minutes and 29 seconds. He was fighting to live. And when he was asking Mr. Chauvin, and when he was telling him, I can't breathe, all he was trying to do was ask for help. That's all he was trying to do. And he was being what I saw being mocked. And I tell people, when you ask someone for help, you're not looking at that person as a monster. You don't ask a monster for help. You're looking at that person momentarily or whatever as a human being. Help me, I'm in trouble. And like Mr. Chauvin, the problem was that he didn't have a big enough heart to look at our nephew as a human being. Because he just saw a black man that he thought was, um, you know, on drugs and, you know, and, you know, so it's another black man that probably has problems and so whatever. He wasn't looking at him as a human being. But Perry looked at him that way by trying to ask him for help. And that's Angela Harrelson and Paris Stevens. Up next, we have Dr. Eddie Glaude Jr. He is known to be a convener of conversations and debates, a columnist for Time Magazine, and a MSNBC contributor on programs like Morning Joe and Deadline White House with Nicole Wallace. There are people that are telling themselves lies about what they grew up in, who they grew up with, what they've been involved with or complicit with. There's been a, um, an aspirational language <laughs> that we have really bought into, a belief of what America could be. And it hasn't been that for many, many people. And we have erased those experiences that we don't want to see just in general. And, um, you know, is, is part of the lie being able to wake up to one's own experience or is it really waking up to what the American experience is? Or is it both? It's a little bit of both, you know? You know, when you think about it, most of those folks who storm the Capitol hold the view that only white voters matter. Hmm. That the America that they're defending is an America that uh, extends citizenship, the right to dissent to certain folk, and everybody else needs to shut up and just be grateful. Right? And if you take that to be Trump's position, then Trump is actually right. He says he won by landslide. He's actually right if you only count white voters. You see? So the point, the point I'm trying to make here is this, 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 the story that we tell ourselves, that this is an example of democracy achieved, right, is a lie. The story that we, you know, to hear President-elect Biden say, this is not who we are, that's a lie, right? That's not to say this is who we are in its entirety, but he knows it's not true. That's yeah. an aspirational claim. So yeah. part of what I was trying to suggest earlier in your question, what does it mean to just kind of stand there and look, this is, what is looking back at me? Who's looking back at me? Because we've been dodging and evading and hiding, right? Because we want to protect our innocence and it's made us monstrous. It's made the nation monstrous, you know, and, 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 you know, they can't, they can't say it's just poor white folk. That's not who all was out there. No, 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 no
So this last gasp of a dying America, hopefully it won't, it won't be resuscitated. You know, this America that's in its death throes, right, poses a, a, a threat to all of us if we don't, if we're not honest with ourselves. And I'm talking not only about conservative Republicans who are corporatists in their orientation, I'm also talking about milk toast liberals. Right. Let's talk about the liberal and how how have they or we or been complicit? Well, you know, Baldwin has this wonderful formulation that he says, he, and I'm paraphrasing him, he says he's skeptical of people who, wants, who want to do something for me as opposed to with me. So when we, think of, when we think of racial justice or racial equality as a charitable enterprise, as a philanthropic gesture, then we leave in place the frame, right, that some people are valued more than others, that some people possess equality such that they can give it to somebody else. Who are you to give me equality? That doesn't make any sense to me. We have to break open that frame. And so part of what we do know is that there are a whole bunch of folk who are interested in tinkering around the edges, but not changing the fundamental bases, right, of the society that has produced the inequality. This is what makes Georgia so interesting to me, right? So not only is Georgia the state that produced Newt Gingrich, it's also the state that produced that vile image of of Bill Clinton and Sam Nunn standing in front of Stone Mountain with those black prisoners behind him. And there, Bill Clinton gave voice to this third-way democratic view of criminal justice that led to the acceleration of the carceral state. What Georgia, the election of Ossoff and Warnock revealed is that that political strategy is dead, is bankrupt. The Clintonism, as it was expressed in that moment, where there is this kind of obsession with you know the Reagan Democrat, the Democratic Party, the forlorn, the forlorn lover who's been rejected by the white worker, right? Who's simply obsessed with, with, with getting him back, right? That has been cast to the wind in Georgia. Right? So part of what we do know is that this mess that we're in is not just simply the result of Republicans. Right? Democrats have been cons- complicit in this. Republican didn't sign welfare reform. A Republican didn't sign the criminal justice. No, right? I can go down the line, right? And so part of what I think, you know, is another example that comes to mind. In New York, the chancellor of the New York public school system in the city uh, made note of how um, segregated the schools were. And he wanted to implement this program that would begin to address how deeply segregated the public schools were. And in the Upper upper West Side, all of these rich white folk who donate to the Democratic Party, they held their um, town hall meeting. And what was revealed? What's going to happen to my school? What's going to happen to our children? They started defending the structures as they were. Mm, So selfishness is not the possession of of any part. Greed is not the possession of any one party, right? Um, And so when I talk about milquetoast liberals, I'm talking about those who are content with tinkering around the edges while leaving the most vulnerable, right, uh, only as uh, uh, the recipients of our chair. That's Dr. Eddie Glaude Jr. Next, Kimberly Fox. 
first African-American woman to lead Cook County State's Attorney's Office, the country's second largest prosecutor's office. She's brought substantial progress in priority areas, including wrongful convictions, bond reform, transparency, and gun violence. What feels different is that I think people actually felt more personally connected in all kinds of ways. And it's amazing how, you know, a pandemic allowed for people to see what's been there. Mm -hmm. Like these things have been there, the cries have been there. Um, how had, how did that affect you or Chicago? You know, personally, I did not handle it well, emotionally. Um, honestly, it, it is, it's the collective vulnerability that we all had in the pandemic, I guess is the way to, to just make us ripened for the, for it. But when you run a justice system, um, or a part of a system that you know is for so many people not just. Um, when you sit as a prosecutor and every day you know that the decisions that you are making cause harm. Like I know this. Um, and you know people like a George Floyd and you know people like, you know, people are like, oh, I'm married to a black man. I am. Um, but I knew a George Floyd, like from the neighborhood, like I, I know, I know this store. I've never been in that store, but I know, I know this setup. I know this, like this isn't foreign. And the notion that I felt so powerless, I felt so, it felt so personal to me because I'm like, and here I am a representative of an institution I am representative of things that I know is wrong and I can't scream out. I can't cry. I can't march. I can't um, do any of those things. I, and I can't defend it. Mm. I can't defend this. And yeah. so it, it feels very, it felt very isolating to me. And I, 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 I struggled emotionally, mentally um, that week and then immediately had to, sort of snap out of it when the protest started to happen and then the we had some rioting that was happening and the tension between I'm a law enforcement official um, and I understand this righteous anger and people who don't understand this righteous anger wanting me to respond in a way um, from somebody who has a complete disconnect from it. So I struggled, if I'm being honest. And that's Kimberly Fox. Up next, Barry Friedman. He's a founding director of the NYU's Policing Project and a law and politics professor at the New York University School of Law. I've had to talk to my, my sons in particular, but I have been saying that, um, you know, the narrative is always having the talk with your sons. And um, it really should be having a talk with your kids because we know that there's growing violence against our young women and um, as Delani um, pointed out, also the sexual violence that happens against our girls um, within policing, but talking with them and having to say and put it in perspective, like this is happening, but think about how many police encounters happen. Think about how many people you know, so that they're not making it automatically their outcome. 
right? And I have to do it, right? I don't know whose comfort it's for, mine or, or theirs, because we're living, um, trying to solve a problem that is very immediate and personal. I, you know, I, during the course of my ordinary week working in the policing space, have so many conversations with Black folks who tell me what you just did as just an ordinary part of their lives. You know, I had to have a conversation yesterday and reinforce things. Uh, it's a different kind of trauma because, um, I mean, I cannot tell you how many people say to me, I worry my daughter is in Los Angeles, my son is in Atlanta, um, and I go to bed at night and I just worry. Uh, or I talk to some friends whose kid was, you know, just scheduled to go out that night, one of the nights of one of the killings. And she said, I just couldn't let him go out. I just, I just couldn't deal with that. And um, you know, that's just unforgivable. I mean, I, I, the idea that people in the United States of America have to alter their behavior because of a legitimate concern about the police, that's just, it's kind of like a showstopper. Like everybody should just sit down and think about what they just heard and say, okay, that's not okay. What are we doing about that? And, um, you know, all I can hope, Shonda, is, and I've hoped it before, so I'm, I'm ready to be disappointed, as I'm sure you are, but all I can hope is that this moment actually is an impactful moment, because, you know, as you know, I've been writing about this for, you know, 15 years now, and um, I thought maybe after Ferguson, I really thought after Philando Castile was killed that it was going to be a turning point because that was just horrific. But then, of course, the officers were killed in Dallas like the next day, and that narrative flipped right away. Um, I thought after George Floyd was killed, and it's definitely been a tumultuous year and there's been progress. But, you know, yet again, with the verdict and the most recent killings, I just, I keep thinking, is there going to be a moment where we actually stop and say, what fixes this? And I'm still not sure we're there. And that's Barry Friedman. Up next, we have the amazing Dr. Yabble She's an activist, scholar, speaker, and author of One Drop, Shifting the Lens on Race. I think that there is a privilege of knowing who you came from, aside from where you came from. And I'm probably bringing those those measures, you know, those things together that are probably coinciding with each other. And then I think as I was thinking about, you know, all of this, you know, identity and who gets to decide and your parents coming and they were very clear and then they became black. And then I started thinking a little bit about the construct of blackness and what does matter and who does get to decide. And I have heard you talk about, um, you know, how blackness was decided and who was black. But how blackness was decided and who was black wasn't always identifiable by skin color. If you were octarone or whatever those things were, right? So I'm wondering if you could just explain that a little bit in terms of how, how and who, how blackness was defined, particularly in slavery. So often we have these conversations about race and they are not only ahistorical, but just, just, just disconnected, like 
what's the starting? Where, where, where do people choose to start the conversation, right? The timeline is few, right? And so unfortunately, so many of us talk about race relations and we always want to go straight to enslavement. Yeah. There was so much that happened before enslavement to even justify enslavement. And to me, like, you know, when I think about white supremacy, the insidious nature of white supremacy, the, the systemic and the institutional trajectory of white supremacy, like if we're going to understand how this thing functions in this contemporary moment, we got to map this whole thing out, right? That there was intent, like, because people, people talk about race, like it's happenstance, like it's something just, that just kind of came or like race is a biological fact. And it's like, bruh, this was a strategy, right? Like we got to go there. That's why we can't just be like, oh, race is a social construct. Race is a social construct that constructed for the purpose of racism. There is no other need for race. None. There's no other need for race but to create stratification and oppression. And so Blackness was created in juxtaposition of whiteness. Whiteness had to be created in order to isolate and solidify power. And so whiteness was defined as pure, right? And so again, thinking of the visuals of exterminate all the brutes, when we're talking about scientific racism, right? We're talking about this legacy of white supremacy. It's not that white folks did all of this research and gathered all this data to say, see, we are the superior race. No, they said, we are the superior race. Now let's go find data to support that. Let's create data to support that. So even when you see the historical images of, of folks having their skulls met, brains measured skulls, they literally threw out the ones that didn't meet <laughs> the standards that they created, right? And so it's, it's, and I say these, I know I'm all over the place. I say this because, again, I, I'm trying to push back against folks who try to think of science as fact, <laughs> okay. right? Because science is still created. It's what they said it was. And we take it as fact. The facts were created for a purpose. Whiteness was created for white supremacy, period. There's no other need for it. There's no other need for it. When we think about people living all over the globe, what is the need to create a unified identity, if not to isolate power? And in order to justify that power, you have to create the folks that you should be controlling, and that's Blackness. So. Whiteness was defined as pure, whatever that means. Whatever, whatever that means. Whatever they said it means, right? And so if you weren't pure, then you were other, if not Black. And again, the language, you know, different language over time, Negro, colored, so on and so forth, but ultimately would say that you were not white. And so... Again, there's so much history. So I guess the simplest way to, to say it is that the one drop rule, you know, was literally a way for them to say, this is how we are isolating whiteness. We're letting you know, we don't care what you look like. We don't care if you have as little as one drop of Negro, Black, African blood. You are then Negro, Black, African. On paper, it was supposed to discourage the quote-unquote mixing of the races. It was to let people know, no matter how much mixing you do, if we find that drop, you're still 
black, right? Or Negro or what have you. In reality, what it did was actually encourage the mixing because what it then said was for these white enslavers, these white colonizers and oppressors that you can rape African women, you can rape native women, you can create all manner of children and you don't have anything to do with them. They're not yours. State sanction. Yep. So, so the Wattrop rule was written? It was. It was recorded as the, the rule of hypo-descent. It, it defined Blackness. Really, in a lot of ways, it defined whiteness. Again, it was attempting to reiterate the idea that whiteness was pure. And so, when we, again, it's for me, it's pushing back against what we recognize as People take racist stuff, right? And it's not to dismiss it because it is absolutely part of our lived experience now. We can't walk away from it, right? But when I say fact, how do you measure race? Mm-hmm. You created race, right? You can measure ethnicity. When we do all these ancestry tests, you can tell me where my people came and what regions and so on and so forth. But what's that mean when it comes to race? You assign those people a race. And then you make and take meaning based upon the race that you've assigned them. To say someone is Bantu, Igbo, Yoruba, Akan is to say nothing but where they come from and their particular cultural identity, right? To say that they are Black is to assign another identity on top of that in relation to whiteness. It is to create a relationship to the power system. That's it. That's Dr. Yabba Blay. Up next, Deborah Archer, a civil rights lawyer, NYU professor, and president of the ACLU. I think we are learning more clearly now the interdependence of our systems between housing and education and policing that I think traditionally we have um, sort of attacked them from a solution point of view um, as though they are isolated. Um, so we have uh, divorced it from its history in terms of solution setting. And we also are addressing it as though it is a siloed sort of event versus part of a broader ecosystem that allows for safety, security and economic advancement. I think that's right there. And I think personally that segregation and housing is central to that because there's really nothing that place doesn't touch and control. Uh, Again, our access to food, our access to quality education, our access to economic opportunity, the the number and nature of our interactions with police uh, are all deeply impacted by where we live. But again, our um, education impacts and influences criminal legal system. The criminal legal system impacts and influences our economic policy, our transportation policy both historically and today, impact access to economic opportunity, impact access to education. Everything is so woven together. Uh, And when I work with my students, I think part of the challenge is that my students and others believe that there is one lever that we can pull to solve inequality. If we can just identify that lever, um, right? And then they'll pull it and everything will be solved. And not spending the time to realize that even a moment on videotape where um, a police officer has taken the life of, of of a black person, so much 
has happened to bring them to that moment. It is not just a question of what happens um, between that individual police officer and that individual person. It is about what happens in our system of policing. It is what happens in our system of, of, of public safety. It is about segregation and inadequate housing and the way that segregation locks people out of opportunity, the way that we view a, a segregated black community as more dangerous, and then how we respond by saying that it needs more policing. And it leads to over-policing where someone cannot move without coming into contact with the police. They can't go about their, their everyday life without coming into contact with the police. And it's about how we then empower police to respond. It's about the way we uh, treat and address homelessness. It is about how we treat substance abuse uh, disorders. It's about how we're responding to high unemployment and lack of economic investment in communities of color. And so much came into that into that moment. All those systems feed each other. Mm-hmm. All those systems. Um, yeah, I'm thinking about Richard Rothstein's book, The Color of Law. Always, everything. He, any, everything, everything, it's all yeah, in there. It's all about the color of law. It really is. It's, it's all about the color of law. And when I think about, you know, segregated communities and um, there's lots of arguments out there about how to address the consequence of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but but overall, we're not suggesting that we need to integrate in order to have our rights be protected. Right. It's not about proximity to whiteness that should get us to justice. That's right. That's 100 percent right. Um, and I think we spend too much time thinking about how to make sure that uh, Black people and other people of color get access to white spaces and white communities, um, to white schools, to get access to the opportunities that have little, have really been hoarded in those communities. Um, and less time thinking about how we support, develop, build um, and enable people of color to access opportunity and resources and what they need to live choice-filled lives um, right in their communities. It, it reminds me, um, historian Manning Marable and his theory of underdevelopment. And he uh, believes that our systems were built to intentionally and specifically underdevelop Black people and Black communities. And we have to do the work to identify those systems that were designed to underdevelop Black communities, to reinvest in those communities, to reverse um, the decades of disinvestment and discrimination that has made it so many, has made so many of them inhospitable to success and opportunity for the people who live uh, within them. And so you're 100% right that it cannot um, be about. Um, access to and proximity to whiteness. Um, I think we have to do both, integrate those white spaces, challenge them as white spaces, um, make them accessible to everyone, but also do our best to better distribute resource and opportunity to all communities and stop the kind of resource hoarding that we that we see now. Um, and then I would just add that as we integrate uh, communities of color, we have to do a better job of protecting um, the lives and opportunities of people who have lived and worked in those communities over decades, who are now facing um, displacement and exclusion from forces like gentrification. 
uh, things that we have to pay attention to so that the people who have lived there can continue to live there and prosper as we reinvest in those communities. That's Deborah Archer. Next, Jim Bear Jacobs, Program Director for Racial Justice for the Minnesota Council of Churches and founder of Healing Minnesota Stories. We're trying to break through or people are trying to break through where we need to have breakthroughs in terms of our understanding of history and how we honor each other in our histories. And that is dangerous work. Right. It's 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 emotionally dangerous, psychologically dangerous. And I don't think that um, people uh, broadly understand those risks that are being taken every day in small and big ways. Yeah, I would say uh, one caveat, which I would say that generally white people are not aware of that. I think I think black people, I think indigenous people, I think other people of color are aware are mostly aware of that cost. Right. But it's yeah, I mean, it, it, it's amazing. I, you know, I um, <laughs> it, it's funny how it shows up. So my my wife. Uh, is is a very wonderful white woman right and um you know and as i said i've been doing this work for 10 years a little more than 10 years and i remember one day i was home but i had to leave because i had an event i had to go speak at right and uh so i was getting ready to to go saying goodbye to my wife you know gave her a kiss and all that and and she was like she was she was, she was mocking being upset, right? She's saying, oh, I'll stay here with the kids and you go off and have your fun. You know, she wasn't really that upset, you know, but she was just making fun of that situation, right? And I was so surprised at my response because I, I didn't have any animosity towards her and I didn't, I didn't feel attacked or anything, right? But I just like, my response was, do you understand that I'm about to go and talk about racism and historic trauma for the next three hours. And this is personal to me. Like there's nothing about this that is fun. I don't enjoy that I have to do this. And it, it's it's interesting because like my wife just kind of went like, whoa, like, like she knew, she knows that, right? She sees me when I come home and I'm just drained and exhausted and I don't want to talk to anyone, right? She knows that it takes a toll. Granted, my response to her was disproportionate to the little joke she made. But I was more surprised at my own response because I know that she's aware, like she's conscious of all of these things. But I think it was just one of those moments where like you, your body reminds you there is a cost to this, right? Your your consciousness reminds you that there is a cost to this. And um, and it is like there's, I mean, I, I know you experience it too. You know, you might be presenting at an event or talking to certain people or a group and you just come away and you're like, you, you feel a trauma response in your body. And that's Jim Bear Jacobs. Up next, Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III. He's an activist, author, filmmaker, and senior pastor of Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago, Illinois. When I think about what our people have lived through and died for, And then last May, this video comes out in Minneapolis. And we know, we have seen all the videos before. So this is no way not acknowledging, you know, Philando Castile and Aubrey and Brianna and 
Freddie Gray and mm -hmm. Trayvon, you know, all of all of the names that we have unfortunately um, known so well um, that it became sort of the instigation for us to move on things that we should have been moving on. But something happened um, with George Floyd that felt remarkably different in the response. Mm. Why, why, do you, why do you think that was the case? Because I've heard people say, what well, was because we were captivated um, because it was the pandemic? Hmm. That's a great question. It was a combination, I, I believe. It was the, the isolation along with the of the video. So in isolation, we have been looking at our devices at a higher rate. And then you have this moment of now we know over nine minutes, you know, we thought it was just under nine minutes of a public execution, a public execution as as a man pleaded for for his life by a person who was funded trained and sponsored by the state we'd seen quick videos you know videos that move very quickly and we're we're trying to really capture and understand what's going on in those videos there are a few few seconds there there may be um, you know 45 seconds uh, as is, you know, in the, in the case of Eric Garner, uh, but here you have almost 10 minutes. That is an extraordinary long time to witness someone's life taken in front of you. And the bravery of Darnella Frazier, the young lady, who recorded that, if she had not been as courageous, we would not witness the dialogue about how do we reimagine public health. I don't like to say public safety. I don't like to use the word uh, criminal justice or policing because our community needs public health. Public health means you start a conversation about how do we ensure that a George Floyd is, is not murdered? How do we make sure that there is not economic apartheid and health inequalities? Who do we call uh, when there's someone having a mental health crisis? That's the public health discussion. It is, if we don't move to that, uh, we will always be in a reform discussion about how we can tweak a system that is detrimental to uh, to the health and well-being of of people of African descent, and being in isolation, witnessing something for ten minutes, the viral nature of of the video. We are in a digital age of social media. All of those things moving together, and still with the residue. Uh, the 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 painful, challenging um, residue of an administration at the time that had embraced Confederate antebellum rhetoric. All of that together, if you have a heart, if you have any sense of empathy, 
regardless of your ethnicity or your privilege and station in life. You had to be moved. If you weren't, I believe that you were deeply infected and affected by COVID-16-19, not 19, COVID-16-19, which is the most devastating disease America has, uh, has yet to, to deal with, um, but has taken more lives than any other disease in this country. And that's Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III. Lastly, John W. Rogers, co-CEO of Ariel Investments, the global value-based asset management firm and the first African-American-owned asset management firm in America history. Just being able to see folks that look like you, CEOs that are African-American, Black men, Black women in these roles, folks of color, the impression and the inspiration that it leaves in our communities is tremendous. Well, it's self-serving for us to say this, but I do think, I tell people all the time, you know, Ariel would have never made it through his first three years if the city treasurer, Cecil Partee, hadn't, convic- hadn't convinced the city's pension fund to give us a million dollars to manage, you know? So all the, whatever good things we've done with the Ariel Community Academy or the Black Corporate Directors Conference or developing leaders like Melody or Jason Tyler, who's the CFO of Northern Trust Bank and Shundron Thomas of Northern, who's on, on the um, uh, management committee there, they all started their careers at Ariel. And all the community work that we do with Melody chairing after school matters here in town and all the rest, it wouldn't happen without customers. And this idea that so many of the anchor institutions in our community don't work with black money managers, if, if we hadn't had those early companies, uh, customers, we wouldn't be in existence. And so I do think it is important for all progressive institutions, if they care about our community, they've got to work with our community and allow us to have economic empowerment. You know, Dr. King often talked about how white Americans deplore prejudice but accept or ignore economic injustice. And that continues to be the state of our society today. And slowly but surely, after the George Floyd murder, a few enlightened people are starting to think about this. I've actually talked to two wealthy white women just in the last few months who've called up, just I bet them through various circumstances, saying they realize they could be doing more, you know? And it's starting to dawn on people that this economic justice issue is, is, a, is a big, big, big deal. Um, but it still is going to take a lot of work. And we got to use these role models we said earlier, those that have done this well, hopefully it'll help shame people into doing the right things, you know, and um, because sometimes people just don't know how to do it and they're afraid of it. And they, or, or they have this unconscious bias. You know, last example, I always give this when I was park district president in Chicago years ago in the nine museums on parkland, I realized we're not doing business with black companies outside of construction and catering, you know, supply chain stuff. So I, we called them all in and we put them on the spot because the park district, they were on the park district land. They were getting direct subsidies from the Chicago land taxpayers. So they agreed to put together a symposium where they would bring, uh, we'd invite minority entrepreneurs to meet with. Uh, the leaders of the museum community to be able to do business. So they came up with an invitation for that event. And on the front of the invitation was a man with a hard hat on and a shovel in their hands. And the tagline was digging up business. So when these museum heads thought about black entrepreneurship, they thought about us using our hands to dig. They didn't think about us as being Bill Gates or Steve Jobs 
or being a lawyer or an accountant or a money manager or a consultant or an advertising executive. They thought about us, you know, in that way. And that continues to be too much of a problem in our society today. This implicit unconscious bias is still prevalent in so many ways in so many institutions. And, 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 and people are, because it's an unconscious bias, they don't even know what they're doing. And that's why it's up to us to call them on it. And there you have it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. You can always reach out to us on our website or social media channels at MPLS Foundation or at Shonda S. Baker. Thank you to Sarah Gillen, John Coco, Darlin Benjamin, and our host, Shonda Smith-Baker. This is Sue Potkinitz from the Minneapolis Foundation. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.